Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Hi, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. This is Eric, your host again, and this episode is going to be a little bit different than our last one. Our last one was a very good discussion about opioids and what we're seeing in trends and prescribing around opioids and addiction to opioids with Dr. Greg Cramp, a fellow retail pharmacist in Ohio. This episode, we're going to take an evidence-based approach to everything. What I'm bringing up here is going to be facts from the CDC website and also facts from lawsuits and other ways that we have had been exposed to some of the issues with opioids. So this is not going to be your normal type of political podcast. This is going to be a little bit done a little bit differently, but we are going to highlight some of the uh, the bad actors, some of the lawsuits, and some of the major facts that are underlying why we thought this was important to really talk about opiates and opioids at this time. So right off the bat, opioids. They were responsible for the death of 47,600 people in 2017, which is the last year the CDC has published data on. Uh, it seems like that's been going down, actually, in 2018 from what I've heard. So that'll be pretty interesting to see what that final number comes to. Uh, fentanyl was responsible for t- around 28,000 from what they said. Heroin was responsible for 15,000 plus, And prescription opioids were for 17,000. Those numbers are pretty pretty high, pretty ridiculously out there. Uh, to kind of put it in perspective, if opioids killed or caused the overdose of 47,000 plus people, there's only 58,000 names on the Vietnam Memorial Wall, which I'm not trying to belittle the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall, but basically we're building a wall like that every year from just opioid overdoses, not even counting the total drug overdoses. To put this in perspective, not even 20 years ago in 1999, there were 16,000 800 overdose deaths roughly in the United States and only a hair over 8,000 were due to opioids. So we went from less than 20 years, 8,000 to almost 48,000. That is a huge increase. Again, why? It's pretty interesting. We'll get into a little bit of that later with some of the bad actors, Why? what I think might have caused some of that. There were 218,000 deaths related to overdoses on prescription opioids since 1999 till 2017. 218,000. That's basically the, the population of a mid-sized city, not counting some of the suburban areas. That's that's just a ridiculous amount of deaths from these opioids. And why it's such a big issue and a hot topic right now these days in pharmacy and in healthcare and all over the U.S. Obviously, some areas were hit a little bit worse. We'll get into that too. But this is happening all over the United States. It's without question one of the biggest epidemics, medical epidemics, we've had. And the worst part about it is that most of this is avoidable. This is brought on by us. This isn't a random contagion like a really bad flu year or anything like HIV. This is brought on by our use and misuse of prescription drugs. A few more facts here on opioids. 21 to 29% of people who are given opiates or opioids misuse them. So roughly one quarter. And a lot of that has to do with how much they're given, how they're instructed or not instructed to take it. There's some interpretation of that of, hey, if one makes me feel good, two's better. Roughly 8 to 12 percent of people who are also prescribed opioids develop an addiction. Purdue Pharma actually published a study when they were trying to push Oxycontin saying only 1 percent of people who were given their Oxycontin opioids were would develop an addiction to it. But actually that number in some other articles they had found it to be around 12 percent, 13 percent, much, much higher than the 1 percent they wrote which is kind of in line with the the amount of people in the United States who have uh, issues with addiction overall. So it's just something to think about that if we're throwing opioids at people, addiction is something that really, really has to be addressed, whether it's addictive personality, addiction within the family, since there is roughly a 50%, some say more, some say a little less, 50% rate of that being genetic component, which I thought was pretty interesting when I was researching this episode. Also, uh, looks like four to six percent of people who do become addicted to opioids or misuse opioids transition to heroin. So that means if we're going to give out 100 prescriptions for opioids, five people out of that 100 will eventually switch to heroin abuse. That might not seem like a lot, but when you consider all the issues that go on with heroin, how easy it is to overdose, and the percent of heroin these days is being laced with fentanyl from bad actors like China, that is remarkably high, especially because when we switch to heroin, the rate of death just goes up exponentially, even versus the prescription opioids. So another thing to keep in mind that I know we don't want to think about this when we're prescribed, when people are prescribing opioids, but just something that we kind of want to keep in the back of the head of. If you wrote 100 scripts in a week for opioids, eventually five people are going to use heroin from that prescription at some point. 
So what has been done about this? There's kind of some mixed data on some of the prescription drug monitoring programs. Uh, I've seen studies that say they're not effective at all in stopping deaths, which it didn't mention prescription drug deaths. It just said deaths when I read that study. It does mention that it will limit the number of available prescriptions, which there's been a study that I was just reading literally before I started this episode, so I didn't have time to cite the whole thing. They came out of Michigan saying that they decreased the amount of prescriptions that surgeons wrote, and with that saw a major decrease in the amount of opiates that were dispensed and given out. And obviously the less you have given out, the less people take, the less people take, the less it's given out, the less it makes it to misuse or diversion. So that was a pretty interesting study. It'll be neat to see what the follow-up to that is. I believe it's the Michigan Open was the study. So the other issue with the PD, PDMPs or prescription drug monitoring programs did say that, you know, since they limit opioids, they did work. Again, it kind of goes back and forth. I'm going to try and provide a lot of these studies and citations in the show notes or in the comment section. There's there's a ton of them. So it's going to be really hard. In fact, the whole notes might just be citing stuff, which is good for, for us because then we have links to everything that's pretty concise. So I'm trying to sum them up here pretty quickly. But one thing that prescription drug monitoring programs did do was they greatly reduced doctor shopping. For those of you who don't know, doctor shopping is when patients hop from one prescriber to another prescriber. I don't necessarily like the term doctor shopping because they could be going to nurse practitioners, physicians. They could be having unwanted or undue surgeries in some cases. They could be just hopping from ER to ER. But that's the term that we call it, doctor shopping. And this was a huge issue too that it doesn't even address that what if the pharmacy was out of stock or the pharmacy refused it. Just something we've kind of noticed with the PDMP programs. It's greatly reduced that as well as e-prescribing. E-prescribing, again, doctors can and nurse practitioners and other prescribers can send prescriptions straight to a pharmacy. That means they can't hop around. They have to go to that pharmacy because controlled substances can't be transferred out of a pharmacy if they were never filled. And if the pharmacy was out of stock of it, obviously the doctor can then send a cancel notice, they delete it out, and then send it to another pharmacy, therefore limiting, limiting the access to opioids and kind of really focusing that they have to go one place to get it. Another thing I found interesting when I was researching this topic was that there was one study out there that said the opioid crisis has cost America over $1 trillion since it started. $1 trillion. That is an absolute absurd amount of money. And I think that it's especially bad because it's a lot of it's self-inflicted. Now, this did count in factors like lost time in the workforce, deaths, all these other spinoff factors, but still $1 trillion is the absolute hole that this crisis has blown into our economy as a whole. Kind of one example of this, I kind of misspoke last last podcast episode. I said that Massachusetts was suing Purdue Pharma for $6 billion. I went back and reread the study again. It looks like they claimed that the cost of the state was $6 billion. I didn't see an exact total how much they were actually suing for, unless that was just implied. I'm not a lawyer, so that's not exactly my forte. But I thought that was interesting. One small state of Massachusetts, which is trying to prove that it was unfairly targeted by Purdue, cost them $6 billion. And I mean, Massachusetts is a fairly popular state, but not not a very big state, nowhere near the size of your Texas, your Californias, some of those other states, even even Michigan. Interesting to see how a small state like that really, really got ravaged by uh, the opioid crisis and what they think is Purdue Pharma. I will put that link in the show notes, and that's page 10 of the lawsuit. If you Google it, NPR has done a really good job of actually following up in this lawsuit, which that's where I found access to it. Again, I love supporting free and great public access to records. There was another list that came out uh, about top prescribing pharmacies on the list, and I kind of wanted to pump the brakes on this one a little bit. It showed the top prescribing pharmacies for, or top dispensing pharmacies for opioids in the United States and went from state to state. One thing I found flawed with it was, or maybe taken out of context, a lot of the pharmacies that in there that had the absurdly high volume of opioids were actually mail-order pharmacies. Mail-order pharmacies have are their own beasts. They do a high volume of prescriptions, they mail them out to patients, and they do a lot of chronic stuff like that. So because of their high volume, they're obviously going to be at the top. I thought a better way of phrasing that study would have been if they looked at it from pharmacies as a percent of what they filled, like of what the total prescriptions they filled, what percent of those were opioids. And I I couldn't find a great measure for that. I found a few here and there, but not enough where I could consistently look at it and kind of pick some, I don't want to say winners and losers, but pick who was the highest on things like that. So with that, and since I kind of already dabbled in it, let's look at some of the lawsuits with opioids. Purdue Pharma has, if I read this correctly, roughly 1,600 to 2,000 lawsuits going against them at one time. Every single state, except I think it was Nebraska and Michigan, is suing or has sued them. The part that I found real intriguing was this has all been consolidated, or a lot of it's been consolidated, into one case in the Northern District of Ohio courts, which is in my backyard with all this opioid drama. 
and I'm interested to see what happens with it. In reading this, Purdue ironically has never lost a personal injury suit. They they will fight tooth and nail on these, which I mean, obviously it's in their best interest as a business. Ethically, that's a whole different discussion. They will settle out of court, but they do take pride in saying they've never lost a lawsuit. Part of that's because they settle and a lot of it's redacted behind the scenes stuff that can't get put out there to the public. One article I really thought was eye-opening in this was uh, the, by The New Yorker, another great publication. It might lean a little left for some people who are listening to this, but I think that when they do these stories, they really do a good job of capturing the essence of it all and kind of playing both sides. I'm a big fan of some of their uh, medical topic writing. I tend to lean a little bit right myself, but I believe that they do a very good job of actually presenting the facts and painting the picture very well for things like this. The article is from 2017. It's been updated, though. It's called The Family That Built an Empire of Pain, and it just dives into the Sacklers. And some interesting things were how many different uh, arts and museums and colleges the Sacklers have donated to. They have wings named after them in the Met, Sackler Gallery in Washington. There's the Sackler Museum at Harvard. There's the Sackler Center for Arts and Education at the Guggenheim. They have a wing in the Louvre in Paris, which I was at last year, and it was, again, an amazing museum. But when I walked past and saw that name, I cringed a little bit, and that's kind of why, because I knew what that name uh, had behind it. I couldn't help but think this whole wing was built by Oxycontin, which isn't exactly true, but you know that's the way my mind goes when I see things like that. They have tons of this stuff all around the world. They have literally given to a bunch, dozens of other universities, Columbia, Oxford, just to name a couple. So it's kind of interesting how this family has been so philanthropic, but it's almost like it kind of off plays the devious way they made money from people's pain and addiction to these opiates through their aggressive marketing tactics. One thing the article also brought up was how the Sacklers kind of came to be and how one of the patriarch of the family actually started in drug sales to some extent. He was a physician and he really changed the way pharmaceutical marketing is done. If you look at today and what we kind of think of as pharmaceutical marketing, approaching doctors and trying to sell things from that angle and advertising them and putting a spin on some of the stuff, he really pioneered that. In fact, one of the first drugs he actually helped advertise was Valium which is kind of ironic that benzos and opioids go hand-in-hand in addiction. And although we spend so much time talking about opioids because of just how tragic it's been and how it can really actually end someone's life, benzos are another addiction out there that we are seeing just tons and tons of traffic on. So I, I thought that was really kind of ironic that he started out with benzos and moved to opioids the way a lot of patients do or when patients who are on opioids need benzos, et cetera. I thought that was really interesting. Kind of going some of these other lawsuits or fines and federal regulators, Teva actually settled, which is a generic manufacturer, which isn't what we think of when we think of drug sales, actually settled a lawsuit with the state of Oklahoma for $85 million for their role in the opioid epidemic. I thought this was interesting because of how small it was. Some of the other lawsuits that you've seen against some of these drug distributors and some of like like Purdue are just for like hundreds of millions of dollars and things like that. And this one was only for 85 I thought that was pretty interesting. There was some backlash from what I saw. I think it was against the Oklahoma AG or attorney general about how small it was and how little that would actually do to help it. And he was kind of like, hey, this is this is what I knew I could get. I didn't want to spend more more time and risk it. Some other current lawsuits that are going on with some of these uh, possible bad actors. McKesson recently just settled a $150 million lawsuit in 2017 for failure of oversight to suspicious orders. I thought that was interesting just because, you know, McKesson is, I think, sixth in the Fortune 500. They were definitely in the top 10. And they're a huge distributor of prescriptions to, as a wholesaler to pharmacies. They also settled a lawsuit for $37 million in 2019 with the state of West Virginia, which we'll get into some of the appellation, how hard they were hit here in a second. Uh, McKesson, Cardinal, and Amerisource Burgeon have also proposed a $10 billion settlement to a group of state attorney generals. And that was, I believe, on August 6th of 2019. So literally just like a week or two ago. The other part that I found interesting was the attorney generals countered and their counter settlement was $45 billion. That shows you right there just the magnitude of how much this opioid crisis has, has impacted us all. $45 billion was their counter to $10 billion. So if I'm just looking at this, I'm not a professional arbitrator, but if you just average these, you're looking somewhere around what, 25, $30 billion. And this again, was not every state. I believe this was only 30 some states were included on this. Some other states have also settled on their own with some of these other actors. I know Kentucky settled out with uh, Purdue and on their own. And they were also criticized for, hey, this isn't enough for what we've seen and how this has affected our state. 
then kind of bring this full circle here, CVS has been sued numerous times. Uh, there's a very recent one for where they were fined 535,000 in just the state of Rhode Island. So literally our smallest state in physical size, they were fined 535,000 for filling known forged prescriptions. And that was in just April of 2019. They also got fined uh, $22 million for stores in Florida for over-dispensing uh, prescriptions, not all of which are opioids, but could have been things like your benzos and your other controlled substances. I thought that was pretty interesting given how Florida's been kind of like an epicenter for all this, in large part because of their demographics and just the amount of doctors they have who are willing to prescribe these type of medications. Again, while I was sitting down today and kind of vetting out this outline, uh, Richie Waith from uh, RX Radio, shout out to him, good podcast to listen to if you're into pharmacy just in general and maybe not the political side of it. He pointed out there was a doctor down there who wrote 13,000 some prescriptions in South Florida for opioids and tried to flee back to Haiti. So it kind of makes you wonder who are we licensing and kind of what are we doing to kind of keep all these people in check? What type of systems are really being watched for? And not to just uh, brag on CVS, but there's been other lawsuits settled. Uh, another well-known one, Walgreens settled uh, $80 million with the DEA in 2011 for similar issues going on in Florida, which just Florida has really been a huge epicenter of this in part because they do have so many prescribers, so many people living in that state and therefore so much access to it. Kind of a personal story was I knew a, a friend of mine, a professional colleague who, while he was in school, was flying from Florida to interview somewhere, somewhere up north. I don't know if it's Chicago, where it was. And he told me about he was sitting next to somebody on a plane and the gentleman happened to kind of, I don't know how this got mentioned to him. They started talking about pharmacy or something. The guy told him, oh, yeah, I'm flying up here because I, I got to sell some stuff. And he's like, oh, what do you mean you got to sell stuff? Are you, are you a sales rep or are you selling like devices? Like, are you like what exactly is going on? And somehow, I don't know how he got out of them or how these people are this open to share this. The guy just admitted he's selling Oxycontin and he makes so much money off of it that he'll get a prescription in Florida and either fill it down there and keep it in the bottle or he'd fly up to like a state like Ohio, fill it, and then he'd just go sell it and to keep a few for himself. And he made so much money off them, it could afford him to not work. He could fly up across the U.S. basically as he wanted to where he could go sell it and just act as a distributor. That stuff has really been cracked down on just with some of the prescription drug monitoring programs. I think that was back in 2010, 2011, when uh, I was told that story. So it was a little while ago, but it just kind of shows you like the, the breadth of this opioid crisis. It's all over. You could be sitting next to someone on a plane who's involved in it anywhere. It's just it's really just kind of permeated the United States. All right, kind of moving into some of more of the uh, bad actors here. Looking at some of the data from, again, the CDC's own website kind of shows where, where some of the bad actors were and where some of the major problems were. If you look up CDC opioid prescribing or CDC opioid drug overdose, their site is really informative. They have interactive maps. And when you pull up some of those maps, they're color-coded. And when you look at the colors, it, you can just see the belt of Ohio and West Virginia and Pennsylvania and Kentucky Alabama, where just the opioids are just a huge problem. Looking back at 2012, I was just looking at some of their overall data. There was an average of 81.3 prescriptions dispensed for opioids per 100 people in the United States. Basically, almost everyone got an opioid at that point. It's just 81% of the, of the people, if you would space it out, could have gotten one that year. Some of the lowlights, I guess you would say, was looking at certain counties. Floyd County, Kentucky. There was 387 prescriptions for an opiate or opioid prescribed per 100 people. Norton City, Virginia was the highest I could find on the map by looking at it. 570 prescriptions for opioids were dispensed per 100 people. That is like the peak of the peak, the absolute epitome of where the opioid crisis struck and just ravaged the lives of people. In 2017, it was actually down from that 81.3 prescriptions per 100 people in 2012 to 58.7. So definitely some progress. And I would also like to say that this is just prescriptions. This isn't total pills. So when looking at this, the, I mentioned earlier the Michigan study where they said that they were giving out less pills per prescription and less prescriptions overall. That's not counted in this. This is just counting prescriptions, not the pills. This isn't looking at the percent decrease of pills. It's just looking at total prescriptions. So in 2017, there was 191 million prescriptions for opioids. That's just crazy, just the amount of prescriptions that we're seeing with this stuff and why it's why it's so pervasive all across the U.S. I thought the interesting thing was, as much as we kind of stigmatize Appalachia in that area for having a huge issue with opioids, Alabama is currently the highest ranked state in 2017 at 107 prescriptions per 100 people, which is actually down from 148. Alabama, again, they've made, they've made less progress than some of the other states and kind of what we're seeing. 
the whole South was still super high compared to the rest of the country. Just like the, like some of those Southern states, I think it was North Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. They were just much higher than the rest of the U.S. currently, which I'm not exactly sure why. I was kind of digging the reasons to that. I couldn't find like a smoking gun, if you will, as to why that was so high. The whole South is just still super high. Uh, Missouri, the last holdout on states that does not have a prescription drug monitoring program was still at 71.8, with certain counties being much higher than other counties on that one. And also Missouri has a lot of, going back to 2012, they had a lot of counties that still haven't reported or didn't report back then. So we, we don't really know some of the data from back then. Uh, Ohio, my home state, was at 63.5, which was down significantly. I'm glad to see that. I'm glad to see that we're receding back to the national average from where we were. I thought that was major progress for us here. Kind of some other bad actors that have been linked to opioid deaths. There's been some cases, I know Ohio had one recently where fentanyl was used in a hospital where doctors, nurses, and pharmacists were all charged with using or lack of oversight to end people's lives with fentanyl in a hospital. I, I won't use any names as to which one it is. You can Google it to find out. I might include the link on it. Uh, there's, it looks like it's still ongoing, so I don't want to speak poorly of anybody if I don't know enough about it. But that, that's pretty, that is accounted in the opioid statistics, and that's one that might be underreported to some extent or maybe just overlooked. I'm sure it's only a small percent, but it's kind of scary to see that stuff like that can happen. Another kind of area of bad actors, pain management or pill mills. Kind of Florida was the hotbed for this. I know even up here in the you know the greater Cleveland area, we were seeing tons of prescriptions for opioids from Florida doctors specifically. We'd even have them faxed over. We'd have them try and call in stuff like your tramadols or back when your Vicodin was a C3. And it really put a huge burden on us. And I was working in a, in a decent area at the time. I'm working more in inner city location now. But when I was even working in a decent area that was not close to our airport, we were getting tons of them. And we were all the way up here in Ohio. Again, we're like a solid 12 hours from almost any part of Florida. And that's if you're driving fast and you know know how to get there. So it's, it's ridiculous amount of like pain management pill mills have popped up. Florida's been on the forefront of helping squash those. It really takes a lot to bust them, though. Uh, I was doing a CE when I was in Florida for a pharmacy conference, ironically, where a DE agent told me that it's sometimes these were almost like organized crime rings with these pill mills where they would have, when they went in there and did interviews with them and stuff like that, or they did phone interviews with the doctors, they'd, be, they'd found out you know, after the fact that there was somebody all but holding a gun to that doctor's head saying, you better say the right things or this could end badly for you. So I think that's pretty ridiculous that that's the way we've made so much worse was by an organized crime factor of it. Kind of hard to believe that doctors would, would let that go or let that kind of happen. Uh, if you want another good read that kind of addresses the way doctors were kind of forced into prescribing this through some other things like hospital habits or like the Press Ganey reports, there's a book called Drug Dealer MD. It doesn't go into some of the dark and nefarious sides, but shows how it can really kind of pop up. And there is a few things in there that kind of make you second guess, like, well, wait, is this actually for my best interest from the provider I'm seeing? And kind of addresses why and how some of it got out of control. I just finished the book. I read it, listened to it as an audiobook. It was awesome. Highly recommend that one too if you want to, like a good read on it or something to listen to while you're out driving around. So some of the things that I've kind of seen that, you know, when it comes to addressing these pill mills is you have to be proactive. And as scary as this is, you really have to be in touch with your local DEA agents or your state board or your state medical board. I actually helped bust a ring for, it wasn't opioids, it was Adderall abuse that was up here in a local hospital where a bunch of their residents were all kind of prescribing for each other. And they got shut down. And I think they all lost their medical licenses, if I remember correctly. I've also busted other prescribers who were trying to fake scripts from another doctor for themselves coming through my drive-through one time. Time. We currently have still some issues with those uh, pain management clinics up, ar up around here in Cleveland. We even had one doctor that would always just kind of give people a prescription for an opioid, like 10 Percocet, 20 Percocet, and tell them it had to last a month. We kind of dug into it and we started calling the doctor. And at one point I was like, hey, look, you've got this guy on 20 prescription Percocets, 5 through 25 all the time but there's no diagnosis code on it. You never have a reason. And the weird thing was, is all the prescriptions were like almost like photocopied or like transposed and he just signed them. And at one point the doctor just told me on the phone, I'm just giving these, them these prescriptions because they asked me for it. It makes them feel better. Don't give me a hard time. And then hung up the phone. And it was kind of like, well, wait, what? And I did report that one to our local DEA, but it's been a it's been an ongoing story. And in fact, him and his wife were both arrested for Medicare Medicaid fraud for falsely billing things. So it was a lot more than just that opioids factor. They were just fracking up the dollars in the in healthcare expenditure for not really much of a reason. Like they weren't even treating people; they were just falsifying claims, which I thought was kind of like, well, the opioids is a problem, but this is also a problem. So it was pretty interesting. 
another kind of personal story I had with one of these pill mills was I had a doctor who wrote a prescription for somebody. And when the person came in, they were completely inebriated. And I was like, oh, God, like, okay, I know that's not a reason to not let them, you know, get their prescription. But at the same time, if they are addicted to alcohol, because I've seen them come in multiple times, just completely inebriated, there's a huge likelihood they could get addicted to the pills. So kind of in the realm of do no harm, let me call the doctor, let me tell him what I'm seeing. So while I'm doing that, I have another patient come up who we had previously actually kicked out of our pharmacy because we caught him outside selling his pills to somebody and we had called the cops and I, I don't know exactly what came of that one. So at that point, we refused to sell it to the patient and I, did, I actually refused to give the prescription back because I was like, hey, look, I can't do this. This is going to be diverted. The doctor was screaming at me. I'm like, hey, look, if you want to give another prescription, that's up to you. I can't in good faith do this. Used a little bit of my secundum artem there to make sure that I was kind of doing what's right for everybody involved especially myself, the patient, and whoever might be buying them. The next day, the doctor called and actually thanked me for it after just yelling at me the previous day. And I thought to myself, okay, this is a hoax. He's trying to get something out of me. What's going on? He then told me that somebody, a woman came into his office, chucked a pill bottle at him and just hit him. I don't know if she like went past the desk or how she saw him, how she knew who he was, chucked the pill bottle at him, hit him right in the torso, and she started screaming at him. Come to find out the guy whose pills we had refused to sell the previous day, his previous month's prescription, he sold to that woman's daughter who had overdosed and was in that hospital's ER for that overdose. So again, the thing I've seen best is just using your discretion, getting the most evidence and using your best discretion you can to make a judgment for yourself. And honestly, looking for the signs of addiction, like and this was a case where I saw the person was intoxicated and then I just kind of associated, well, if you're addicted to one substance, you can be addicted to another, which there is a link with that. And I did see a few studies that say if you're addicted to one substance, you can be addicted to another. Again, in drug dealer MD, then addiction specialist even states that's a thing to watch for. The doctor didn't really get busted per se, but I guess it opened his eyes to his prescribing habits, which could be just as good because now we have a doctor who can still practice, but is now more alert to what's actually going on with some of his patients and what to watch for. Uh, kind of the one of the last bad actors here, Purdue Pharma is just the cloud that hangs over the, a lot of this. They released Oxycontin in 1995. They had a big ad campaign with, with some, some dubious claims. They came out with it in 1996, and they really focused on targeting physicians, kind of like the uh, elder or patriarch uh, Sackler had done in his days when he started marketing Valium and other medications like that. They kind of took those same marketing strategies when marketing Oxycontin, published misleading studies, again, about the addiction rate being 1% versus 12% or higher. And one of the interesting things in some of the lawsuits I read and in some of the history, like the New York Times article, they really wanted to get over this opiophobia or this fear of opioids the doctors had and other people in the medical industry had. And they did that just surprisingly well with the amount of data they published. In fact, there was a university, I think it was University of Toronto, somewhere in the Toronto area in Canada, where they had actually done a pain management seminar and Purdue had put in there that oxycodone was only a moderately strong medication for pain, which is just laughable now. Maybe hindsight's 2020, but eventually that they got kicked out of that whole pain management by the university Purdue did. So I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, when you look at exactly when the opioid crisis started, it really started at that time when Purdue started started pushing their campaign for Oxycontin. In fact, 99 to I think it was 2007 or 2006 when Purdue settled their first lawsuit for 600 plus million dollars with the U, with the U.S. federal government. And then from there, I think it was 2007 till modern day is when the Massachusetts lawsuit just covers that small like 10 year time frame, And they're saying in that time frame it cost them $6 billion. And then you look at the prescribing habits and the marketing and Purdue's the amount of sales reps they hired is directly correlational to the amount of opioid overdoses and prescriptions that went around the US. Peaked in 2012 and then you saw them start kind of backing off it and you saw prescriptions start to fall. And that's probably combined with some of the prescription drug monitoring programs and states being a little more aware and seeing the deaths start popping up. But I mean, it didn't even peak for deaths at that point. Part of that is just the transition people go through from taking prescriptions to then a smaller percent who eventually moved to some of the uh, using some of the harder drugs like heroin and I do want to preface that not all people do that there are people who are successful with these medications and who do need these medications but the more prescriptions we have out there especially for the short-acting opioids the more likely there is the increase in, in opioid deaths and things of that nature in fact this kind of ties into the patient satisfaction issue that me and Greg hit on in some of the press gaining reports some of the data on patient satisfaction, which again was hit on in Drug Dealer MD as well, is that higher patient satisfaction actually leads to higher medical costs and more spending and a higher mortality rate. 
that's kind of counterintuitive because you think that a patient who's really satisfied would be super engaged in their medications. It's actually found not to be the case. In fact, the Michigan, the Michigan Open study drew a direct correlation with patient satisfaction holding steady while they actually prescribed less opioids to treat the pain. I thought that was was very instrumental that they looked at it like that because so much of the way hospitals, doctors are reimbursed is because of patient satisfaction, how they're rated. If you Google a doc, depending on what website you find, I know ZocDoc is one of them. There's a few others. You can go see how people like that doctor and you can give them like a five-star rating and put why you like them or why you didn't like them, which is kind of scary that if you're a physician and you keep getting pressured by a patient to prescribe something or someone's presenting with symptoms and you're not sure, or you're not seeing exactly what they're describing, do you want to prescribe something like this knowing that it'll make them happy even if you're not certain or you don't believe it's the best way to go that kind of goes into what me and greg are talking about a little bit with pharmacists and how we feel like sometimes we should be reimbursed for actually not filling a prescription because although the person doesn't leave there with what they think they need they might have still got what they need so that's just a, kind of something to tie in what we were talking about there was an interesting article called that's been circling on facebook with all of my friends in healthcare. it's called the worst patients in the world I want to preface this that in healthcare, we don't hate our patients. We only got into this to try and help people. Every time you talk to somebody, the highlight of their day, their week, their month, their year is when they help someone and when they got to do something right or help, help make something right for somebody. But with that, this article really hit on why America, we have such a healthcare spending problem. And one of the reasons they cited was because Americans are kind of hypochondriacs, yet we still skip our checkups, we don't go to a regular appointment, we demand drugs because we want a quick fix to things, we don't do the behavioral and other non-pharmacologic things that we probably should do to help ourselves. And it's kind of no wonder that we we lead in health spending because by not doing that, we end up more in the ER with on-demand services because I need this now and the ER is the only place open or I need this now and I can't get to my doctor's office instead of waiting or taking like a wait and see approach. Now, when it comes to addiction and opioids, that's a little bit of a different issue, but some of those same factors come up like, hey, I have pain, I want to be gone. Well, there's so much pain that actually is a good thing to provide feedback or that you can live with. Now, there is also the fact that pain can be tied to things like depression and whatnot. There's many cases where pain's a good feedback mechanism as well. The Michigan Open Study I just recently read also kind of had surgeons mention that, that, hey, look, we're try- we want to make you better. Your pain might be like an eight. We brought it down to a three. But at the same time, we don't think we'll ever be able to get it to a zero or one, which is a whole other marketing tactic that Purdue came out with was the, the pain scale with like the grimacy face versus the smiley face on it. Uh, it's kind of interesting how we've seen that change as well. But Purdue really came out with that as a marketing ploy to try and make pain the fifth vital sign, which I know Greg Cramp hit on. One of those ways that they just kind of were very good at making it a diagnostic tool for doctors and working it in there. With kind of enough stuff on the opioids, let's kind of look at some of the opioid addiction issues. There's been a lot of efforts to increase the prescribers of Suboxone. All started with legislation. In the Data 2000 Act, there was a limit that was put on prescribing physicians for treating people who had opioid use disorder or an addiction issue to opioids. And they had to prescribe to 30 patients for a year. After that year was up, they could apply to get it increased to 100 patients. It wasn't until 2016 that that cap of 100 patients per physician was lifted. That was lifted to after a year of treating 100 patients, they could then see up to 275 patients. And this also, it was called the CARA Act, C-A-R-A. I also included nurse practitioners and physician's assistant with proper training. Uh, I've recently seen a friend of mine who's went through it. I might get her on sometime in the near future. She is a nurse practitioner and she's interested in help treating stuff like this, where she just uh, applied for getting her ex-DEA so she can start prescribing Suboxone and things with opioid addiction. I thought that was pretty interesting. And, and now this is another thing where you can see it, uh, from the pharmacist end, sometimes we don't know about all these acts. Sometimes the doctors might not either. But if you have a prescriber who's seeing 30 patients a year and you're getting three or four in your pharmacy like every week to all of a sudden the next year, they're allowed to see three times, actually over three times the amount of patients. And now you're getting 12, 15 all of a sudden just because the demand is so there for this. That's where you can start seeing, hey, this might look a little shady, but it's not. That's where I, I guess as a pharmacist, you know, make sure you're out there communicating with your prescribers in your area. It's huge. We had one like this recently by me where they kind of opened up and they we were seeing a couple. And all of a sudden we're seeing a ton more. And then, you know, two years later, we're seeing just like a huge amount of them because that prescriber went from seeing, you know, 30 to 100 to 275 pretty quick. So, you know, you can see within two years, the prescriber seeing almost 10 times the amount of patients they were seeing for this versus a year before. And you combine that with the fact that sometimes they have a, a tit-for-tat approach where they only give patients like a week at a time until they build up trust. And then if maybe the patient, for whatever reason, tested positive for another drug or wasn't taking their medication, they cut them back down to like every three days or two days I've even seen. 
and then eventually they work their way back up. So you kind of have patients all over the place coming at random times, getting prescriptions. It seems like it just never goes away. That's when we're pharmacists. We need to try and do our best to kind of get over that stigma because yes, these people have had addiction issues, but at the same time, we really have to make sure that we'll for, we are fulfilling our end and taking care of them and counseling them and doing whatever we can. That's a whole other thing about being paid for counseling patients, but you know that's where we can make a big difference. That kind of ties in well to, again, last podcast, I said it was Boston that was doing the Suboxone kind of prescribing or dispensing from pharmacies. It was actually Rhode Island. I totally misspoke on that one. Got my Northeast states mixed up a little bit. They're all kind of clustered in there. So I apologize to my Boston and Rhode Island friends. I really dug into this a little bit and it looks like pharmacists are really taking over the care for some of these patients at six different pharmacies. It's for about 125 total patients. They're actually allowed to include their professional discretion to change doses. This is huge. This is like one of those things that I'm like, oh my God, this is happening. Like, this is great. Pharmacists are actually allowed to use our freaking doctorate degree to make decisions for patients or for those who don't have doctorate degrees are then 20 plus years of experience to make decisions and dosing for patients. And then even changing the frequency of their visits. So, you know, with that, they're out there testing patients with a, I think it's a mucal swab or a cheek swab type of saliva swab. Just make sure they're taking their medications and that they're actually compliant with it and they're not taking other drugs. So they can switch up the frequency if they need to, kind of that tit for tat approach to really optimize the treatment for the patient. I read that this also included Vivitrol, which is an injectable one. We just got approved in Ohio to dispense at pharmacies and even inject it. I thought that was big because then someone can come in, we give it to them, we know they're good. 100% compliance because they can just come back and whenever they need their next dose, we give it to them again, boom. Obviously, this is only for stable patients, but it's great because they don't have to worry about taking every day. Their life isn't consumed by that, having to put the Suboxone strip under your tongue and dissolve it twice a day, maybe a little bit more than that if need be, or even once a day, or having to cut the strip. Sometimes prescribers write for a half a strip and then you got to cut it and store it. And you got, you know, it's always in the back of your mind of where is it? So I really love the fact that Vivitrol was included with some of this uh, for the pharmacy end, which is just naloxone for those of you who are listening. And the other thing that was really good about the Rhode Island thing was uh, physicians associations were really supporting this. I think the reason they are supporting it is they can see more patients and free up their time to do that then. They might be still limited by federal standards, only see 275 patients for addiction issues or opioid addiction issues, but then they can spend the time opening up their, their practice to other patients and helping them, whether it be like their depression or anxiety or what have you. And if you've ever tried to make an appointment with a psychiatric doctor, it is so tough. They are so backed up. They see so many patients. I don't know how they don't develop mental health issues from just the workload and the demands of their of their position. In fact, uh, the president of the Massachusetts Society of Addiction Medicine, Dr. Michael F. Beer, Beyer, I may be saying it wrong, he even agreed saying there's no reason why pharmacists can't do excellent at this. This is a good way to expand access to high quality care. Thank you, Dr. Michael Beer, because that is exactly what we want to do as pharmacists. I know some people might not want to be out there doing like swabbing someone's cheek, but if it takes me swabbing someone's cheek to make a difference in their life to help get them through an addiction issue and get them back to being a functional, fully functional adult, I, I have no problem doing it. Sure, you know, just maybe compensate us for the time we're doing this a little bit, which is still much less than doctors. But give us that ability to really go and take care of people. That's why we got in here. Let's put care back in healthcare, damn it. This is one of those things that just is infuriating to me. So kind of going and focusing on some of the other ends of the stigmas with Suboxone, there are currently 46,500 prescribers or medication-assisted therapy like Suboxone, Naloxone, Vivitrol, and many of them don't practice in rural areas, which is where we saw huge outbursts of the opioid crisis. This is a quote um, from Hannah Nudson, or Nudson, PhD at the University of Kentucky College of Medicine. The current number of wavered physicians, those approved to do medication-assisted therapy, is not sufficient to ensure access to buprenorphine treatment for all individuals with opioid use disorder. So if you took those 46,000 prescribers and how many people had opioid use disorder, we literally can't treat them all. That's why I think something like this pharmacy program could maybe even increase that number of patients that doctors are seeing from, say, 275 to I don't know, 400. I don't think that's a huge jump if they're already seeing 275, but I'm not the one seeing them per se. But now we can start seeing more people and treating more people and help getting them on the road to recovery, which is huge. But she also goes on to say, even if every physician were prescribing at maximum waivers, we still couldn't treat them all. One of the other issues that she kind of addressed in a quote later on, I've heard mentioned multiple times is, in fact, uh, the Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost even said, why are we having to jump through all these extra hoops to prescribe medication-assisted therapy or Suboxone? It's easier to prescribe Oxycontin, literally the, the drug that started this, than it is to prescribe the drug to help treat it. I thought that was really a really good insight that the Ohio's attorney general was that well thought out to kind of realize that and address that and just to have the 
cojones to say it. So shout out to Dave Yost. He seems to be like he's uh, on board with what a lot of us pharmacists think when it comes to multiple things. I would love to have him on here sometime just because he's a, he's a huge fish in a pond where pharmacy has been stirring up a lot of, a lot of the muck. Some of the other um, stigmas that exist with this are the lack of understanding of treatment. Again, this was mentioned really well in Drug Dealer MD, how addiction treatment is not mandated through almost any type of residency program, at least of 2017 when that book was written. And I I see it. I see tons of prescribers who are afraid to treat it and who try and like dance around it and do other things. I've had doctors write literally for somebody who's addicted to opioids. They wrote tramadol taking 12 to 15 a day. I forget which one. And when I call them, I'm like, hey, this person has like, they told me that they're addicted to opiates and that's what you're treating this with. And he said, yeah, I know. I'm like, well, do do, we want to give an opiate? Like legally they have to go see an addiction specialist. And his response was just fill it. I don't care. I'm doing this to help help him. And I'm like, hey, look, this is over the max dose. He could overdose on this or move on to something else. Like my license is on the line with this now too. And this is where as pharmacists, we kind of develop some of those stigmas, I feel. We're put in the middle multiple times as the gatekeepers between what the physician's right and what the patient wants or what they pick up. I actually love that role. I feel like it's huge. I feel like us as the medication experts have a big responsibility in that. But many times if we see bad prescribing, now the doctor or the nurse practitioner, whoever the physician wrote the prescription, did it under either bad pretenses, false pretenses, or did it just to get what they thought was quote unquote, take care of the patient. And we have to really kind of make sure all the laws are followed with this stuff. That's why I'm a huge fan of what Rhode Island's doing is because now we're put right in the middle of it, but also have a decision-making role in this process. Another issue with some of the stigmas for Suboxone was a lack of time as a resource. Doctors aren't compensated well enough for uh, for seeing these patients. And that's something that maybe if they compensated pharmacists, uh, what they're compensating the doctors at, we can spend more time going over things like that. I mean, there may be some extra training we have to go through, but I, I really feel like that that would be something that we could do an awesome, awesome, awesome job at. In fact, if people are you know diagnosed with pain, they're reimbursed. It looks like better than if it's the addiction issue, the addiction process. Uh, this isn't the same as treating high cholesterol. We can't just throw pills at it and hope it goes away. That's kind of what got us in this point or in this circumstance. So kind of taking some time to reflect back from all of that and look at what are the guidelines for this. Um, the CDC always recommends start low, as low a dose as possible, and go slow. In fact, that's really the third thing they recommend. The first thing they recommend is non-pharmacologic therapy. I tell my patients this all the time as a pharmacist. I actually try to put myself out of business by not recommending drugs to you. No one ever believes it, but it's really the truth. There's so many things you can do to help, you know, just take care of yourself in general. So that's the first thing that the CDC recommends. The second thing they recommend is pharmacologic therapy, not opioids, like things like your NSAIDs, muscle relaxers, what have you then your opioids, but only for like acute pain. And they actually go out to say, avoid long acting formulations, which is funny because that's what Purdue was pushing with Oxycontin the whole time was long acting formulations of a product that was previously generic and that was very inexpensive. They just made it a longer acting formulation and said, oh great, here you go. This is gonna solve all your addiction issues. But again, start as low as possible with opioids and then make sure you increase slowly and only as needed. And they didn't mention this, but it kind of seemed like it was hidden around of trying to get off the opioids, especially the higher dose ones, as soon as possible. Some of the insurance companies, we've seen this where they put a seven-day limit in ER doctors or on acute short-acting opioids like your tramadols or your Percocets. Greg had mentioned he's been seeing that over there on the west side of Ohio. They've also done things like when there's combinations, like an opioid and a benzo, because that's considered a high risk or like a high addiction rate, they flag it. And then we as pharmacists have to go and document that we've spoke with the doctor about it to ensure that, yes, the doctor was okay with that. Believe it or not, I that might sound like, well, duh, didn't they write the prescriptions? You wouldn't realize how many times in a given week or month I call and then I realize, hey, this person's seeing one doctor for their anxiety or for their mental health, another one for their pain. Neither are more aware of each other. And then we either cancel the opioid, cancel the benzo, switch medications, do things like that to really help optimize the therapy and decrease the risk of addiction. Uh, there's a few other things like limiting the amount of prescribers a person can see. So if they're flying out of the ER or doctor shopping, I've seen insurances stop that. The one caveat to all this, though, is these are only changes insurances are doing. If someone still wants this, they can pay cash for it. And that's where I reflect back to that secundum artem part of it, where as a pharmacist, you need to use your discretion to really be like, hey, you know what? I get you can pay cash for this or use a discount card because your insurance is covering it. 
but I'm going to put my foot down here because that's not the right thing to do. Now that does involve doing your due diligence and making sure that you're calling out to, to the prescriber and really making sure that this you know isn't just a one-off episode, treating the person like an individual, not blanketly covering it which is more work. And that's again why sometimes I feel like we should be compensated when we don't fill these prescriptions is because we put in so much work just to fill prescriptions. When we don't fill a prescription, we usually put in twice as much work to make sure that, hey, that was incorrect. Kind of going over some other great reads here. So I, I brought up Drug Dealer MD quite a bit. Amazing read. That's an amazing read. It's really, it covers a lot of issues with healthcare, but it really focuses on just addiction in general, not just opioids, uh, your Adderalls, your Benzos, all that type of stuff. I thoroughly enjoyed that book. I would love to get the author on here to help her plug it. It's so good. It was really, really just worth it to me uh, to read as a, as a practitioner of pharmacy. Painkiller is another one that I read. It's pretty good. It focuses really just on the opioids and dope sick. Dope sick really kind of does like the long story of how it hit Appalachia and tells kind of how it started, how people started raising the flags early and even says, hey, there's pharmacists who started calling this right away, but people weren't listening. That's where I'm going to make another thing here as a pharmacist, you speak up and be heard. A quote I've probably, you'll hear me say in every episode is if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I think that's one of those with these is because we didn't take enough ownership to raise the flag to call the DEA agents of what we were seeing, all of a sudden we're the ones who are being attacked for a lot of the stuff when really we weren't, for the most part, at the heart of the problem. There were some bad acting pharmacies I didn't mention. There's obviously your your online pharmacies are horrible for this. I think something like 80 to 90% of what they fill was like narcotics or opioids or benzos or any of the other controlled substances. So, I mean, those are some bad actors there too. And there's some, some individual pharmacies that have obviously, they're more like one-offs, but ironically a lot of them are chain pharmacies or I shouldn't really say that. A lot of them were, were pharmacies where somebody was trying to get their bonus, basically, or somebody had a big financial incentive. And that's why I feel like, you know, again, what Greg said, you get what you pay for. If we were incentivized not to fill these sometimes, and we could prove a reason why. It would actually help everybody, including the incentivizing people who have to make the decisions. You know, a doctor gets paid whether they give you a prescription or not sometimes, but their patient satisfaction rating might change, which could later affect their payments. We don't have a lot of that. Uh, pharmacies do get rated on customer satisfaction through different methods. And sometimes, yes, our bonus is based off that, which I always think that's hilarious that probably one of the number one complaints that I, I know I get on myself is he didn't fill my prescription because of blah, blah, blah. Who does he think he is a doctor? And sometimes I tell my boss, well, yeah, I know you're not a pharmacist, but I do have a doctorate of pharmacy. And that was my decision to not fill that for this, this, and this reason. But again, some other great reads, Dope Sick, Painkiller, Drug Dealer MD, uh, the New Yorker article on the Sacklers, the family that built an empire on pain is just amazing. It's about 30 pages. It's like a mini book, but it tells an amazing story of it. And then one thing f just to read to understand kind of how big pharma works in general. One thing to read is the uh, the Massachusetts versus Purdue lawsuit. Absolutely amazing. That That was just second to none with like... Really, it has direct quotes, email links. I think it's, I forget how many pages it is. It just goes on forever. But that's really an amazing read. Very eye-opening as to what Purdue did and kind of some of their tactics. All right, so I like to end every week with some calls to action. So here's some of my calls to action with a little bit of explain of each. Pharmacists need to be allowed a lot more discretion in their practice. Again, payment for refusal to fill a prescription with supportive evidence. I think that's huge, especially when it comes to something like the opioids. You know, if we see somebody's going to multiple prescribers, we should be compensated for that. It could be through the insurance. It could be not through the insurance. It could be a state fund that has something on there to help, you know, the opioid reduce opioid reduction task force or something like that because a lot of times these patients do want to pay cash now i'm not going to say that we only care about money but we have to put so much time in this it's like what's the incentive and i don't think a lot of people understand that it's easier for us to fill the medication in most cases than it is to refuse it yet all of our headaches come from the refusal part i also think that a pharmacist should get a lot more involved in helping screen patients especially if prescriber offices won't especially for past histories of addiction familial addiction history things of that nature since there is roughly a 50 percent genetic link to drug addiction or obviously things like opioid abuse asking like things like if the patient's had any problem with, with alcohol in the past or any other illicit drug use or narcotic use issues their family has i know my family does I feel that now it's more and more talked about. There's more and more people who understand that. And that's where, hey, this is a drug. We're pharmacists. We need to own that aspect of it. I really love what's being done in Rhode Island. I really think this could be a major benefit for patients and providers and pharmacies, the way that they're really taking ownership of the drug, of the dose changes, and 
really owning that, even switching it to Vivitrol if they can get patients to be more compliant on that. I think that's awesome. I want to see the studies from that. So if there's a pharmacist listening to this who knows anything about what's going on with Rhode Island with their um, medication-assisted therapy services, please reach out. I would love to have you talk about it on here as much as you can. I know it's a study, so I know you might have some of your hands tied, but I think that's something that we could definitely use here in my state. I would love to help get enrolled with it. I'm not sure if my employer necessarily wants us to be doing that type of thing, but would love to totally see something like that being done here in Ohio. The other issue here is uh, don't give in to the customer's always right mentality as pharmacists. I know that I, myself, when I worked for a, a different company and had a boss who was not a pharmacist, I, held, I heard them tell him, just fill it out. It's what the patients want. Well, that's not, I can't do that. One, there's a there's a moral obligation to do what's right for the patient and to you know make sure you're following all the laws and everything's on the up and up. But I've had patients before that they or had friends before who are pharmacists, who their district manager, whoever it was, told them just fill the prescription. I don't care. Gave the patient a, a coupon card or a gift card and then said, hey, just fill a prescription. So now they walked away with a gift card for complaining about it and the drug they wanted. You really got to stand up on that. And then, you know, when someone does do that, making sure you respect their decision as long as obviously they're presenting you with all the reasons why they didn't do it as long as it makes sense. I really feel like using your secundum artem to practice will actually help patients. And again, looking back at the highest 20, the top 25% of patient satisfaction, it actually had a 26% higher mortality rate, which is just exactly what we don't want to do. Never mind the fact they also spent more in healthcare, which is again, something we should try and reduce. Um, and part of this is because people's bonuses and metrics are all based off of, you know, filling prescriptions. Obviously that's some serious issues. Uh, we definitely need to reform the reporting uh, that pharmaceutical companies do. As I mentioned earlier, just briefly, it was uh, Purdue Pharma kind of covered ups or didn't report some of their studies that showed Oxycontin had much higher addiction rates than the past. And I feel like that's something that, again, I'm actually not a big government person, but I feel like this is one of those things where the government should maybe have someone collect the funds uh, for like the FDA from all these drug companies. Like when they say we want to research a drug okay, great, we collect the money and then we distribute it to people who are doing it just because these drug companies are funding studies and not reporting stuff. And that is a huge problem with a, with when we're seeing stuff like this with Oxycontin and with Purdue Pharma. I really feel like this would also help open up all the studies and help avoid that perverse financial incentive from people doing the study and the, the drug manufacturer from sending them money. That would be just awesome to kind of alleviate that. So when we look at studies, it could say, one thing you should always look for, it'll, it'll have something like, this study was funded by Purdue Pharma, as an example. Well, it could say, this study was funded by Purdue Pharma, but funds were transferred to the FDA to make sure that there was no fin perverse financial incentives or something like that. I really feel like that would be awesome. One thing I did look at too was some of the bigger pharma companies, I can't say this about Purdue in this case, they spend roughly 15% of their budget on advertising and only about 7 to 8% on R&D. So kind of with that, if maybe the FDA could or somebody could reform the way that these studies are being funded, could also maybe make a mandatory flip-flop of that. I'd rather, I mean, 15% of their budget R&D would probably go a lot further in making some useful new pharmacotherapies as opposed to stuff like Duexis, which is just ibuprofen and ranitidine, two over-the-counter medications combined into one pill, or Diclegis, which is just, what, vitamin B6 in a low dose combined with uh, over-the-counter sleep aid to help with nausea that costs hundreds of dollars. Like, maybe we could actually get some real drugs that are going to make a positive difference here and not cost an arm and a leg. And kind of the call with that is, you know, if Purdue had reported all their information and maybe the FDA had kind of been the filter for some of this funding, we could have avoided the opioid crisis. I mean, with just common sense uh, mandates and on their business practices instead of letting them kind of run rampant with what they want to report. Lastly, the my last call out on this is the uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration does have a hotline. So if you know someone who's affected or you have a patient or you just want to have this on hand, that phone number is uh, 1-800-622-HELP, help. 1-800-622-HELP, which is 4357. So 1-800-622-4357. With that, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, email me at politicalpharmacist at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at political underscore Rx, also on Facebook. And you can find this podcast on virtually any podcast site now. We're on Stitcher, we're on Apple, we're on Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and of course, SoundCloud, who is my host. Thanks, and I hope you guys have an awesome week at the pharmacy.